Good morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, today's discussion. Um, we have the lovely Yafa with us here today, and she's going to be explaining a lot more about the Panama Papers. We're lucky to have um, some of the investigators with us as well in the audience. So um, fire away with your questions. Um, before we begin, my name is Sophia, and I'm heading up the Global Investigative Journalism Network in South Africa. Um, it, will be, it, is, it covers Africa, and um, we are a global network of uh, NGOs uh, across, the, uh, across the globe. Right? We will be hosting a um, global conference next year. And um, I want you to please, if you are in interested in investigative journalism, uh, tweet us at our hashtag, at G-I-J-N, Africa, and go to our Facebook page, also Global Investigative Journalism Network Africa. You're going to see a lot of uh, stories about investigative journalism in Africa on the page and on social media. So please get in touch. Uh, drop us a line as well, especially if you are investigative journalists and you have stories that need to be shared. Our information is not just going to African journalists, but it's going to investigative journalists and journalists across the globe. And um, we, uh, uh, we would really like to see you all at our conference next year. Okay, for today's event, what you need to know is, uh, please tweet on the hashtag uh, RDA16. Okay, you guys all got that? Um, this is a very key uh, um, uh, talk that we're having here today. Investigative journalism is not going away anytime soon. It's incredibly important to our societies. Um, and it's incredibly important at a time when journalism is changing as fast as it actually is. Okay, so with that, I'm going to hand over to Yafa. I ask that you please put your cell phones off, and if you can, please don't leave the, the lecture room once the, the talk has, be, has begun. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. My name is Yafa, and I actually serve in two roles. In my first, I'm the managing editor of World Policy Journal, and in my second, I'm an editor for the African Network for Centers of Investigative Reporting. These two jobs are not mutually exclusive. In fact, much of what we do is integrating our editorial prowess with the great investigative work that Anchor does already. So today's presentation is going to focus on one such collaboration. I've renamed it Behind the Leak, The Secret World of Africa's 1%. And it focuses on a joint initiative around the Panama Papers leak, which many of you are familiar with, which was the big leak this year in April, of 11.5 million documents, many of the stories directly touching on Africa. So the World Policy Team served as the editors, while the anchor reporters were the ones who took lead on investigating much of the content from Panama Papers that had an Africa connection. And while we were quite happy with the results of the story, seeing them being published across papers uh, in Africa and beyond, we thought they could benefit from a broadcast uplift. As we know, as we've discussed the last few days, for much of the continent, radio still remains the primary medium and perhaps the most democratic medium for accessing information. And these stories really do affect Africans. One of the stats that sticks out to me today um, is that $150 billion a year is lost in Africa to offshoring. That's a startling statistic when you think about what that money could go towards 
infrastructure, healthcare, schools. So Africans should know these stories, all Africans, regardless of education, regardless of literacy rates, etc. And with that in mind, we decided we had to integrate that into the work we were already doing, a podcast we call Africa Investigates. But before I delve into that, it's worth explaining how we transitioned from being pretty much exclusively print to podcast. Um, our parent organization is called World Policy Institute, and they're based in New York, and they're a global think tank that attempts to provide an open forum for diverse points of view. But specifically, we prioritize voices left out of the mainstream in the West, marginalized voices, and we try to create a democratic platform for them. Over the last 33 years, we've developed a variety of media channels to create such a platform. So our quarterly magazine, World Policy Journal, is just one of them, and each issue is themed, focused on one particular area that we think deserves attention. We pretty much exclusively work with non-Americans. It's our chance to provide a platform for, frankly, people who haven't had that opportunity to speak to the White House. To date, World Policy Journal ranks as one of the most widely cited uh, policy publications. We're carried in 60 countries and 70,000 universities. But we understand that in today's world, a lot of people don't read print anymore. And so over the last two years, we've begun to reorient. The first area we've invested in is our digital space. So we produce three to five expert op-eds a day from writers across the world. We've also developed a series of blog verticals that cater to certain issues we think could benefit from additional reporting. The African angle is one example. It happens to be our most successful example. The only requirement for writing for the African angle is that you be African, but you can write about local or global issues. And it actually accounts for 20% of our traffic, which given that we're run out of the US is pretty remarkable. It's also helped us create inroads in specifically South Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya. But to fast forward, our most successful medium to date has actually been our podcast. So World Policy on Air was actually relaunched in February of last year, and it comes directly from the pages and website of World Policy Journal. Our host, David Alpern, who's probably one of the more famous radio hosts in America, hosts our weekly podcast, and we talk about the current issues. We talk about Brexit. We talk about the, the attack in Istanbul. We talk about the Black Lives Matter movement as it plays out in the US. And in just over a year, we've been able to build an audience across 35 countries, and a pretty varied audience as well, pretty much wherever the Brits colonized and people speak English. But our second podcast, and this is our answer podcast, is the one of most importance. I spoke about it last year at this conference when it was more of an idea, and I'm pleased to say that we actualized it about two months later. It launched in September 2015, and it was created with funding from the Open Society Initiative of West Africa. This podcast serves two functions. Number one, it shares exposés on corruption in Africa with audiences that might not be able to access or read print and digital. But number two, it also walks the audience through how to do these investigations. Investigative reporting is incredibly complex, and if you're a young journalist just starting out, you need a little bit of a how-to guide. So each episode, in addition to interviewing the lead investigator, also interviews a special kind of editor who explains his or her process in that investigation. With the launch of this podcast, we've had close to 50,000 downloads to date, and our number one country for listeners is actually Nigeria, which will soon become quite clear. So to give you an overview of the podcast we've already done and how we got to Panama Papers, our first episode of Africa Investigates focused on the World Bank's the mismanagement of World Bank funds all across Africa, but specifically in Nigeria. 
and our host, Chris Roper, who's one of the Answer co-directors and the former editor of Mail and Guardian, interviews three people. Musukilu Mojid of Premium Times in Nigeria provides the local example in Badia East, a Lagos slum, where people were basically told to evacuate in a number of hours, their homes leveled, and no compensation provided. And he provides that local example, and we were, he actually works for Premium Times, and so we were able to get it out into Nigerian communities who could be affected by the same sort of mismanagement. But we also had two other um, reporters on this, Sasha Chafkin of ICAJ and his cohort Cecile Gallegos, Shilis Gallego. Uh, Sasha led the larger collaborative investigation. This story was bigger than just Nigeria. It was actually bigger than just Africa. It went across Latin America and parts of Asia as well. And how do you do collaborative journalism? Some of the most impactful investigative journalism is collaborative, as Panama Papers is actually a prime example of. So he walks us through the process of collaborative investigation, and Cecile is a data journalist. So you have all of this information, you have all of this data of World Bank mismanagement, but how do you begin to make sense of it, and how do you begin to connect the dots? So that was episode one, ambitious. Episodes two and three focused on Australian mining companies up to no good throughout Africa. We chose two case studies, Mali and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and in the Mali episode, we have Will Fitzgibbon, also of ICAJ, providing the larger context. But then we had, just a flashback, David Zimbele providing the Malayan example of how people had basically been promised false promises by Australian mining companies, told to abandon their land. The Australian mining companies would come in, they would create infrastructure, they would provide jobs. What ended up happening was very far from that. In general, they were displaced, not provided with compensation. The mining companies took the resources and sometimes even left. In the Cote d'Ivoire example, we had Celia Cousse provide a very similar and sad story, but then we had Heinrich Bomke on this episode, and he's a prosecutorial editor. He acts as the lawyer on an episode. So if you're an investigative journalist, very often you are dealing with things that are potentially litigious. So what sorts of questions do you need to be asking yourself to avoid, and I'm an American, so I always worry about this, getting sued? Um, so he walks us through the questions that you have to really ask yourself, and particularly with an investigation like this. And with our fourth episode, we turned to uh, Ebola in Sierra Leone and why it was the disaster that it was, how systemic corruption in the public health care system exacerbated a problem that could have been contained. So this is a way of taking me back to Panama Papers. With the success of Africa Investigates, we decided to think even bigger. Podcasts were great, but if we really wanted to reach a larger audience, we needed to get on radio. And so we started having conversations with radio networks, and they all said, you need more episodes before you can begin to syndicate. So we decided, we can do that. With the release of Panama Papers, we were sitting on over 20 potential stories, each of which could be a compelling story for a larger community and could provide great training. So, what story do we choose to start with? Nigeria, Nigerian double offshoring. It's ripe with all the elements of good storytelling. You have black gold, unseemly alliances between government and private partners, and billions of missing dollar bills each year. And in this episode, Khadija Sharif, who I'm pleased to say is right here with us, focuses on Nigeria's illicit system of double offshoring. It's a system which involves moving both oil and oil revenue through offshore entities to maximize profits. So to give you a little bit of context of this episode, and it was an incredibly complicated investigation, I had to have several whiteboards going in my office to try to make all the linkages clear. But to give you a sense of it, 
Nigeria is currently the largest economy in Africa, and in large part thanks to the oil and gas sector, which makes up a third of the country's GDP. But Nigeria's economic rise to power has been plagued by one scandal after the next, and with the release of Panama Papers, Nigeria is once again in the hot seat. So, with the discovery of oil in the 50s, we saw an influx of investment into the Niger Delta, and to date, more than half of Nigeria's oil is actually drilled offshore or in deep water. One example of one of these large offshore oil fields is Agbami, which in 2009 reached peak oil production at 250,000 barrels a day. Both the private partners, in this case Stardeep, which is a Chevron company, and Fanfa Oil, and the public partner, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, stood to make huge profits from their investments. And yet, how much each partner was making and where the money was going was a bit of a mystery. So in this episode, we begin to unpack the mystery. We follow the money, and we follow the money from the coast of the Niger Delta to Belize, Panama, Liberia, Switzerland, and beyond. How both the public and private partners were using offshore entities to maximize their profits. But of course, the nature of offshoring and of the Panama Papers stories themselves is that they're incredibly difficult to track. Shell companies upon shell companies are created to shield the true owners from detection. And so, while the story itself is fascinating, the process of collecting the data for its creation is equally important. That means that the Panama Papers podcast actually serves the second objective very well. It's an opportunity to train young investigative journalists in data journalism. So, in this episode, Friedrich Lindenberg, who's a Berlin-based data specialist, discusses the methods he used to scrape the massive data sets. And he was actually using mostly commercial information sources, so RigZone and FPSO, which are some of the big oil rig databases, publicly accessible. It's unlikely that they suspected they would be used for these investigative purposes, but he manages to walk us through how publicly accessible information can be used for larger investigations. And another point he makes, which I think reiterates a lot of the points we make in earlier episodes, is that it's a collaborative process. Friedrich wasn't operating in a silo; he was working along Khadija, who was doing some of the heavy lifting and the manual research. And the data journalism was complementing the work of the deep investigative journalism. But oil isn't the only corruptive force in Nigeria. Our next episode is going to feature an expose of the head of the Nigerian Senate, the third most powerful politician, Bukolo Saraki, who's accused of failing to declare his property and operating for,、uh, foreign accounts while in public office in direct violation of Nigeria's code of conduct. I think what makes the story a little bit juicier,、uh, at least to me, is that his wife is a major part of the scheme. The accounts are registered under his wife's name, and Emmanuel Mayag and Joshua Alufeme take us through. This man, who's currently、uh, facing several charges, but Nigeria isn't the only country named in Panama Papers, and so we come to Sierra Leone for our next ep- episode and return to Siles Bandia, who actually appeared in our Ebola episode. And so this is where we meet an unseemly character, Benny Simons, who many know is the most prolific diamond buyer and a supplier to Tiffany's and Company. He's also Been in the public eye for not the best of reasons. In South Africa, he is、uh, dealing with an alleged tax avoidance scheme. In Guinea, he's accused of bribing the president's wife for mining contracts. And so, with all of this bad press, Benny Simons was looking to get a little bit further away from the limelight. So, in 2014, he sells 30—I should say, allegedly sells 37.5 percent of Simons's group. Diamond segment to his brother Daniel. Now, selling a third of it in theory should take him 
further away from it. But he manages to still manipulate the system from afar, from the British Virgin Islands, to be specific, through a company called Octia. And though he seemingly is a billionaire, his company is in the red. And so this episode will focus on how Benny Simons manipulated the system from VVI. And the last episode right now that we have commissioned in the series takes us to Angola and also back to Khadija. So in this episode, we have the uh, country's sovereign wealth fund at the core of it, Fundo Soberano de Angola. It promotes itself as this vehicle of development and prosperity. It's worth $5 billion, and it's led by President Dos Santos' son. But many have questioned whether this fund, funded largely by oil revenue, is just a channel of laundering money out of Angola. And so this episode sheds light on a fund beset by these claims of irregularities, nepotism, and financial security or insecurity, I should say. For this, we're going to return to Khadija Sharif to explain to us the web that was created and the partners, the two other main partners that the president's son used to create this laundering scheme. So, if you're interested in any of these podcasts, you can access us on iTunes or through our podcast distributor, IONO. And we're very hopeful that this fall we will also be up on radio. Our, first, our four targets are uh, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, and South Africa. So with that, I'll take questions. You can just raise your hand if you're ready to ask a question. Okay, taking two. Hi, good morning. Um, I would like to know from Khadija, um, how long did it take you to do these investigations? I mean, you at the same time also have to train young journalists and you want to do that so you can understand that you have patients where you know that you would have done it, say, for instance, in three weeks you have to help them and it takes longer. So if you can, for instance, take us the oil story, the first podcast from the Panama Papers in Nigeria, how long did it take you until you were satisfied that everything that you wanted to say you were saying and in the production of the podcast itself? Thank you for the question. Um, so ICIJ um, collaborated with Anchor, the center, over several different projects that Yafa mentioned. And um, one of the reasons they collaborated with us is because we have the iLab team, of which she's a part. Um, for example, the prosecutorial editor will take the courtroom model of cross-examination. It's not just to predict from suing, it's to close vulnerabilities and escape routes by identifying for bias, inconsistency, contradiction, and so on and so forth. So. What we want to do is train all of the media houses um, to transcend the silos of journalism by learning how to become a forensic financial researcher, by learning how to litigate, by learning how to be a data expert, so that in time we'll be obsolete, we hope. Um, and with these stories, um, most of the African media houses that we, uh, whose stories we were developing could not afford to go to, for example, Berlin, where ICIJ had their big meeting. So we organized an Africa meeting with ICIJ, um, 14 different countries, and we were able to manually introduce them to the data because while we provide virtual mentoring that's free through the iLab service as well as grants, um, and people like Yafa would literally work through five to eight different drafts of each story. So it took a period of eight months because we didn't only want to build up a believable story that had character, context, and color, but we wanted to make the reading experience something that um, readers would enjoy and that didn't disrespect the public because we considered the, the public to be a jury. And we wanted the public to be able 
to understand and be part of the story rather than the initial drafts which were very good but if you've read investigative journalists sometimes the work can be dense it can be data dumping it doesn't really give you the arc the detail the sense of presence and so that's where the editors came in we went through about 30 editors and what we wanted were people who specialized in long-form journalism and could give a sense of space and place, you know, make you feel like you're sitting in the room. You're there, it's cold, your toes are damp. Those little things that people forget are so critical. Um, with the Nigeria story, it basically began because I was very interested um, from the Gulf uh, of Mexico disaster as to why people were only focusing on BP and not Transocean. Because all of the rigs that BP and Shell lease are owned by other companies that register it in tax havens specializing in maritime systems. So you register a rig in the Marshall Islands or in Liberia and those tax havens create a competitive edge for a small fee every year, maybe $3,000. They have no labor, no financial, no environmental laws. How could the U.S. government regulate what it did not know existed? So, you know, we wanted to unpack the systemic context in which supply and demand side opacity and corruption can occur. And that's why we created the doubleoffshore.org, which goes through every single oil rig in Nigeria, provides the registration of the rig, provides the systemic context of the company, what the jurisdiction entails, and so on and so forth. So we created the reusable data website, which people can go to doubleoffshore.org, and then we created one story to explain how Nigeria loses about $10 billion a year in a technically legal way. And then we kind of hooked it into the Panama Papers um, because it's like Kim Kardashian's butt, it's very fashionable. And uh, you know, the champagne off the butt, everyone's reading it. So with the Panama Papers, we were able to show a context of Nigeria that nobody really focuses on, which is the briefcase companies. Nigeria is the only oil-producing country in the world that doesn't sell directly to end users. They have created a landscape of legal corruption by allowing for politically connected elites to use shell companies hidden in tax havens to buy oil from the government and resell it to commodity traders like Trafigura. So in the example that we put, we show how $300 million of oil is sold for $100 million profit by an unknown middleman using Gibraltar and Switzerland. So we wanted to basically cram a lot of information uh, into that story. We used an excellent financial mail, uh, editor Rob Rose. We were working with uh, Yafa and we're just very glad about the final end product because I'm also a writer. I can be incredibly dense and write for myself instead of for the public. So that's where she comes in and, and handles it. Thank you. Sorry for the long rant. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> uh, two things. Uh, one, um, how do you get, uh, what are your plans for getting all of this great stuff out to a larger public? I mean, you, you, you talked a little bit about using radio more and this kind of thing, because I think it's great stuff. Second thing is, any ideas of how you, how, uh, in Zambia we work with 21 media outlets, a lot of governance stuff, a lot of accountability, watchdog role. But we would love to bring something like this down to a more local level. So even at a district level, provincial level, national level. Yeah. So do you have any partnerships at a more, or do you do trainings or at a much more local level of how local journalists can do this within a district or, pro or province or what it is? 
Yes, I'll take on the first question. I think Khadija can speak to the training element and the second question a little bit better. Um, so when we started podcasts, obviously I'm based in the U.S. and podcasts are the number one, I mean, th they're more popular than radio, I think. As was said on the first day, American radio is kind of boring. Um, so podcasts are the number one medium. Um, it was also critical for uh, us to kind of explore this new model um, ourselves because we had an established podcast. But we also realized that data is very expensive here, and if we expected people to download podcasts, it was still going to be a limited audience. It was going to be a self-selecting audience. So that's why radio became the obvious location. It was easier to format these episodes for radio. Um, Initially, we are looking at larger radio networks um, in major cities. Ideally, we would also be able to access community radio at a certain point. Um, so I've had some initial conversations in a South African context here about community radio networks that we can access. There certainly are South Africa stories that came out of Panama Papers as well um, that would fit here. Most of our episodes are very West Africa focused, so I'm looking at community radio uh, in a Nigerian context right now pretty heavily. Um, and radio there is incredibly powerful. And then actually, the person on the answer team who handles a lot of this, he's based in Kigali. So we're also looking in Rwanda pretty, pretty heavily. But I think community radio is the next step. Once you get the major radio, you go kind of to the local level. But in terms of training, I will let Khadija talk about what answer does with local journalists. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we do free training uh, across Africa. We've gone to 17 countries. Um, Anchor's uh, primary mandate is to work with the investigative units of media houses because the continent is so saturated with training that's free. And a lot of it is just cuck. Sorry, crap. Sorry. <laughs> Not good stuff. It's stuff that donors want organizations to do that's trendy, that's PR. You know, even when we talk about things that are data training, how is data training going to be useful and relevant to people? So we have to think about if you are a journalist and you live in a small town or you live in a city, how is it actually going to work for you? And thankfully, I am a technological dud. I'm a dud in most ways. So if it works with me, I know it'll work with a lot of people. For a while, with encrypted PGP, I didn't know where people were having lunch because they would encrypt it um, to make me decrypt it to figure out what was happening. Um, and so if I wasn't going to go through that trouble and I was going to starve, I thought, what are these other journalists who don't have a lot of time, who are not technologically um, synced, going to do? And then we figured out things like ProtonMail, HushMail, free services that are very secure, that do provide encryption. It needs to be free, cheap, and easy for people to actually want to use it. If it's going to be a lot of trouble, it's not going to be something that lasts for the year. It's not going to be internalized and applied as part of your normal um, system. So whether we teach prosecutorial editing or forensic financial stuff, which sounds complicated, but it's really very easy. Um, we try to customize it for the media house that invites us. We study their work, we study their audience, we try to figure out what is it that they actually produce, and then we work with them to make them better in the way that they need it, rather than coming down with a homogenous program, listening to what a donor will tell you, and producing cuck that nobody will use. So, we want to learn the identity of the producers, of the audience, of the country, where they're based, what kind of radio frequency they have, and so on and so forth. And that's how we um, provide our free training sessions. Everything that the iLab does, um, we also train people to do. So it's the editing, the prosecutorial, the financial. And believe me, when we are done training people in basic accounting rules, they can think and respond and be combative 
with accountants because they now know what it means. So those are important things. Can you speak the language? Every single field and theme and industry has its own language. So we teach them how to decode the language and be able to hold their own in that context. And it takes time, but we have a very good success rate. Um, so most of the journalists that we worked with on fatal extractions, we also were able to bring them into the Panama projects mm -hmm. because now they don't need to be fixers to a foreign journalist. They can take the byline, um, they can direct the gaze, and they can bring in the narrative that is authentic to their own country. Any more questions? Can I ask another one? I think Yafa, you can answer that. Um, Khatija touched on it, and it's because of Kim Kardashian's butt that these stories, which is very important for everyone in Africa to know, could be celebrities have celebrity status because it become trendy. So in that, to me, lies the problem of very good investigative journalism. If you cannot find Kim Kardashian's butt, how are you going to make people want to read the story that is actually very important to them, but because it's not, doesn't have the name Panama Papers attached to it, no one would know about it. So do you have to wait until there's something that will make you think this is the timing for my story, or do you have to make your story trending and in doing that maybe sell out some of your story to make it more trendy? So I think there are a couple of components to it, and I think about this a lot on the World Policy Journal side, because we specifically target stories that are underreported and people aren't talking about but should be talking about, and we have to make it sexy in a certain way. Um, I think one element, though, and this comes back to just like solid, good storytelling, um, we emphasize this a lot, and Khadija will get this edit for me a lot, like, I need the human element. Who are the people? I need someone who I can care about in the story, um, a compelling character. A lot of investigative journalism is so dense, and there aren't these characters, there are these data dumps, and it just becomes very difficult to navigate, and you give up as a reader. So one of the things that I always stress with Khadija and with all of the writers that we work with at Anchor is, Who's, who do I care about? Why should I care? If you can't make me care in the first paragraph, I'm going to stop reading. But the other element, and I think this is a theme that's come up over the last few days, is you can't just have one form of that content. So you can have the long-form piece, and there are people who love long-form journalism, but what's the web version? What's the podcast version? What's the social version? Um, we've just started experimenting a lot with Facebook video. I mean, Facebook, at least in a U.S. context, really controls the media market in a disturbing way, um, and they're constantly changing their algorithms. But when we can get it right on Facebook, we can drive traffic in an incredible way. And so we've started embedding content directly into Facebook. Um, we find videos a very good entry form into that. Um, ICAJ had put out, a, I thought, a really good video on Panama Papers when they first released it, because at the end of the day, nobody knew what it was the day, you know, the, day the leak came out. So I think you need like the good elements of storytelling, but I also think you need to be considering multiple audiences and diversifying the way you present that content. Um, but it is an uphill battle. It's definitely an uphill battle, and I say this in, in a U.S. market that is oversaturated. Um, the other thing I, I will say is we've over time developed certain areas that are our niche that our audience comes after. So we are not breaking news, and we're never going to be able to give you breaking news. Um, we're, we're much more reactive, but we're also much more a hub for long-form investigative pieces. And so it's a kind of brand identity that I think needs to be developed. I think every media house has it. Again, in the US, a very popular new form of media is the single-issue news site. So the most successful one in the US now was started by the ex-executive ex -executive editor of the New York Times called The Marshall Project, and it just focuses on criminal justice issues in the US, of which there are many. Um, 
they were able to raise somewhere between 14 and 17 million dollars for it overnight. And it wasn't just because Bill Keller was there, it was because this idea of single-issue news sites is also very popular. And they kind of own that space and they become the place you go to every time a police officer is accused of killing an innocent black man in America kind of thing. So I think that also helps. Do we have any other questions? Thanks. Mine is the parochial question. Have you done anything on South Africa related to the Panama Papers? So Khadija can, can speak more to that. Amabungane seems to have taken lead on a lot of those, but yes, the answer is yes. Um, so just to be naughty and divert, um, we did a story on De Beers, and Lettergate was the blog um, where we showed De Beers undervaluing by $3 billion, which at the time was over 35 billion rand. You know, it went to Parliament and so on and so forth. But with the Lettergate blog, um, we were also able to use publicly accessible information to show that until 2007, De Beers paid nothing, basically, in taxes and royalties, because they claimed they had a letter that exempted them, but the letter couldn't be found for 13 years. It was smudged, no signatures, no identifiable names. How does the biggest diamond company in South Africa that essentially has its roots in colonialism not provide a letter to Parliament Scopa for 13 years, depriving billions in resources, and thereafter donating its staff to the state diamond trader to provide them with exemptions that the company would receive. And the state diamond trader says, there's no conflict, you know, no conflict. Why are you asking that question? And so essentially we have a very reputable, credible company that is continuously ripping off the country from its diamond reserves. That's not in the Panama Papers, but that is a story that was publicly accessible for maybe 20 years now. So with the Panama Papers, my biggest fear was that, again, it would be Kim Kardashian's butt, scandals, villains, and that people would now look past the value of publicly accessible information, which is where a lot of the Panama info was. The leads were already available to the public. So with the development of stories from South Africa with great guys like Barry Sargent and from other places around the continent, because the journalists could not disclose until very late in March that they had access to the information, they had to find publicly accessible information to hook their questions onto in order to develop their stories. And in doing so, not only were they able to learn how to access, how to develop information that's already in the public domain, but it shows you that you don't need a leak, 11.5 million bits of information, to find the biggest, most important stories affecting your country, or even the little stories affecting a thousand people, but that affect real lives. You just need to be curious and study the information that's available, develop your own niche, and don't really worry too much about whistleblowers. While this information is important, this information could also have been found in other places. For example, the Sierra Leone story that we did, we knew from the customs data that $350 per carat is being undervalued for export from Sierra Leone. They're externalizing $200 per carat, so they're basically self-regulating the tax rate that they pay to the government. That was publicly accessible, but the information provided the hook, the news angle that would have allowed us to cover it. So it goes back to the question, how do you create the Kardashian butt news angle? Um, and I think, again, that just takes the talent of journalists, the talent of editors, and we all as journalists really need to wake up and start looking at the information that is accessible, because you don't need to wait for a whistleblower to give you the same stories that you know, could be hidden. Sorry, I think I went off on a tangent. Good <laughs> Anybody else?
Okay. Um, can I hand back to you? I think that's it. Uh, just to conclude. So, yes. So just to conclude quickly, if you are interested, we're available on iTunes, we're available through IONO, and as soon as we're available on radio, we will also make that public information. So thank you for coming. <laughs>